tonight on Arena. We hear from Beethoven on the keyboards and Killers of the Flower Moon and Foe are the films up for review. You can text us on 51551 or tweet at RTE Arena. Tonight in Arena's film reviews, we have a genre-tastic selection with a Western, a dystopian sci-fi with two Irish stars and an old-fashioned horror. A film from Martin Scorsese is always an event and with Killers of the Flower Moon, the legendary director brings his epic rendering of the true story of great riches and dirty dealings. At more than three and a half hours long, the film stars Scorsese's favourite muses, Robert De Niro and Leonardo DiCaprio. Foe transports us to the year 2065, where Saoirse Ronan has finally settled down with Paul Meskel. Only joking, their characters have. But a stranger arrives to upset their quiet lives. And as Halloween is on the way, a horror flick, It Lives Inside, brings us a monstrous unleashing of something terrible. Deirdre Malumby and Dave Hanratty have been to the cinema and they join me now. So let's start, Deirdre, with uh, Scorsese's Killer of the Flower Moon, a film he has been, has been described as his epic about a, the bloody birth of America. Yes, and it absolutely is an epic, a masterpiece. It is cinema in every uh, sense of the world of the word. Um, synopsis wise, we are looking at um, the turn of the 20th century. Um, oil has just been struck on this land that the Osage Nation has been uh, forced onto. This results in them becoming some of the richest people in the world overnight. However, their wealth, as you can imagine, immediately attracts outsiders. They start to extort and steal from the Native Americans and eventually go so far as resorting to murder. This all based um, on a true story. Um, so among these events, Ernest Burkhart, who is played by Leonardo DiCaprio, um, weds one of the Osage Nation, uh, Molly, who is played in this film by Lily Gladstone. She's absolutely phenomenal in this. I think that she steals the movie, to be honest with you. And it's really his corrupt uncle, William King Hale, who is played by the great Robert De Niro, Um Hale is really kind of the front runner behind all of this um, exploitation, although they're completely unaware of this. And the situation just gets worse and worse. And eventually we have Bureau of Investigation, a investigation agent Tom White, who is played by uh, Jesse Plemons. He would have worked with um, Scorsese previously in The Irishman. Um, he turns up and then the film takes a very different direction altogether, as you can imagine. Dave, there's some great scene setting in this. We get this town where oil has been struck and suddenly it's not the white people are rich, it's the Indians it's the Indian uh, nation the Osage nation who are going around in fancy cars and dress beautifully Yeah and with that comes the resentment I mean the white people in this story and again as as Dee underlines this is a true story this is based on true events, the white people resented this and said no no we're entitled to that money, not you and so they set about this sinister conspiracy that would eventually uh, lead us far as murder and it's, it's the matter of factness of all this and this is what Scorsese is trying to explore I think it's what it's, he's been trying to explore his entire career it's the, the American dream the people who chase it and how corrosive both the dream actually is and the people who go after it as well 
well. And this is a film <clears throat> in line with The Irishman, in line with uh, so many films that Scorsese has made. It's clearly on his mind. And just the matter of fact, cruelty and callousness and greed. I should say up top as well, Scorsese is known for making very violent films. And there is certainly violence in this film. But... Um, I found myself really kind of shocked and stunned at just how horrible the characters were behaving with their language and with their how they were treating people and how behind the back it was of people. It's less about seeing, you know, characters die in horrific fashion. It's more about the betrayal of them. And Scorsese captures that relentlessly. Now, it's clear from the very beginning that Leonardo DiCaprio's character Ernest is no Einstein. In fact, mm-hmm. he's quite dumb. But how but he knows exactly what his uncle is up to. His plan, the uncle's plan is that white families marry into the Osage people and get the rights to their oil and the Indians suddenly end up dead. Absolutely. And I think that this is probably the dopiest I think I've ever seen uh, Leonardo DiCaprio uh, play a role. And I would argue, I don't know if he's totally convincing in that regard. What's quite interesting was, now this is kind of as reports would have it, uh, Jesse Plemons and Leonardo DiCaprio were actually supposed to play the reverse roles. And I almost feel like maybe Jesse Plemons would have pulled it off a bit better. And I definitely could have seen Leonardo DiCaprio um, step quite neatly into the investigation, um, Bureau of Investigation uh, role here but um, yeah Ernest is a very interesting character in that he kind of pertains to be uh, quite innocent obviously in front of his uh, wife who is seeing like all of these horrible things happening to her uh, friends and family as they're basically getting murdered and the walls are closing in on 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 her but Ernest is never like let off the hook for his roles in these crimes in spite of the fact that he is portrayed to be kind of something of a slow character he does have many many opportunities over the three and a half hours to push back against or to stop these events but he continually chooses to lie to steal to manipulate um, staying on the side uh, with his uncle and that relationship actually was a really interesting uh, point of interest for me as well Let's go back to the beginning when Ernest is meeting Molly for the first time he is like many of the white people in this community doing more menial jobs he's got a car so he's working as a cab and he's giving Molly a ride but there is, as we'll see here, a genuine connection between them. He told me he was, he was going with Matt Williams for a time. You talk too much. No, I don't talk too much. Just thinking who I got to beat in this horse race, that's all. I didn't realize this was a race. I don't care for watching horses. Well, I'm a different kind of horse. <laughs> what was that? That's how you are. I don't know what she said, but it must have been Indian for handsome devil. <laughs> <laughs> So he's an old charmer there. That's Lily Gladstone as Molly and Leonardo DiCaprio as Ernest. So when does it start getting nasty, Dave? 
Uh, pretty quickly. I mean, in, in terms of just the kind of the montage setting of just seeing the, the, the chaos and the death that is strewn upon this this community, this nation. And you know, it, like, again, I think we can't get past the fact that this film is three and a half hours long. So you have to approach it with patience. That like, That's what's happening here. It's But it's not wall-to-wall violence. Like I say, like so much of this is just, you know, it's people talking to each other and betraying each other in that way. That relationship that you hear there is quite interesting because it's not like Lily Gladstone's character is unaware. She calls him a coyote. And she calls them, him that playfully, but she knows, like, every one of these characters is aware that white people are looking them, at them not just with resentment, but with, as dollar signs in their eyes. They want what they have and they will go about it whatever way they have to do to get it. And I think as well, you know, in terms of the characterization, like, you know, DiCaprio is playing this kind of weird mix of a character who is both, you know, handsome and charming in one way but as Dee says slow in another and he's he's totally aware of his surroundings he knows what he's doing but there's no real conscience there and like that's kind of baked into him in a very insidious way but much more so with Robert De Niro's character yeah um, there, it, Molly is a very central character in the film Deirdre but is there a sense that how come they don't cop what the white people are doing. Yes, there's a romance between her and the Ernest character, but her family start dying around her and they're all married or related to to this group, you know, which is the the head of that family is the De Niro character. I think that you can't really underestimate and I think that that's what Scorsese like depicts so well here, but you can't underestimate how manipulative uh, DiCaprio's Ernest and De Niro's Hale are because these are two characters who, you know, they're mourning alongside the Osage Nation. They're crying with them. They're saying, we're going to get to the bottom of this. We absolutely um, have to. Um, Their relationship with one another is another thing that I found really compelling to watch um, on the screen as well as, of course, their, you know, manipulation of the Osage Nation. Um, With his uncle and nephew. Yeah, the uncle and nephew relationship, exactly, because Hale like infantilizes his nephew so much he manipulates him he talks down to him he actually spanks his nephew in one scene that's how far the infantilization goes and you know at the end of the day we are watching two of you know the greatest actors of our time um, opposite one another and to see that kind of power play between them I found to be um, absolutely fascinating and one of the many things about this film that I've found really compelling I absolutely adored um, Lily Gladstone's um, portrayal depiction of Molly was absolutely beautiful too and so so heartbreaking as you see um, that um, emotional psychological and physical disintegration of her character. Yes because her character has diabetes and Mm -hmm. she is suffering from that and and some actions of earnest as well. Let's let's uh, show some of the the violence or the reaction to the violence. Here Robert De Niro's uh, character uh, Uncle William Hale gives out to Ernest for a botch job on a killing. This supposed to be a suicide, you dumbbell. You didn't tell him to leave the gun. I don't know why I told him to leave the gun. I told, told him, exactly. him to leave the gun. Just like you what told him, kid. I don't know why he didn't. I don't know why. I told him just like you told him. You told him to do it in the front of the head and why did he do it in the back of the head? I, I, it's I, so I, simple. The front is the front, the back is the back. He has to make it look like he done it himself. It just looks like murder. It's not supposed to be that way. You hear? I told him the front of the head. I said the front of the head, just like this, just like you told me. I, I promise you. I promise you. I swear on my children. No, 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 no. I don't swear on my children, King. And don't swear on your children. Makes you look foolish. Well, I ain't. I ain't foolish because I'm gonna. 
there, Ernest messing up again there. That's Leonardo DiCaprio and his uncle, Bill Hale, who is not happy with him. What did you think of De Niro in this, Dave? Absolutely magnificent, yeah. And like he is one of the greats. He comes with a lot of baggage, I suppose, but this should earn him an Oscar nomination and perhaps even a win. Um, it's quietly done. I mean, he can go big if he wants to, but De Niro is one of the great actors who can wear that subtlety on his face, that kind of sense of menace just creeping across his features. Um, he holds the screen. DiCaprio, you know, as you hear there in that clip, is so clearly subservient to him, but so is everybody. And it goes back to what, what Dee was talking about a minute ago. You asked the question, how could this happen and how could they not understand what was happening to them and why wasn't it stopped? I mean, they did understand it. They were doomed. This is the problem. People didn't care enough. And when they did, it was too late. There's a line late in the film by one character, a Native American character, who says, um, you could get arrested for kicking a dog, but if you kill an Indian, nothing will happen. And that's kind of the way it is. And that's across this film. I think Scorsese has done something brilliant here. Lily Gladstone is incredible, but also you can't escape the elephant in the room here. This is made by a white filmmaker. Even people who've worked on this film, who worked with the production, have said that they would rather see an indigenous filmmaker make it. But the reality is, Martin Scorsese is Martin Scorsese. He's going to get those opportunities. He's going to get three and a half hours. He's going to get to tell this story. It's imperfect, but I found it deeply compelling. Uh, Uncle Bill Hale tells us uh, tells Ernest very early on what the plan is. And we are told this plan over and over and we see it carried out with terrible cruelty and violence. Does that take away from like, is there tension? Is there vigour in the film when something like this is already told to us and we're just waiting for it to unfold? Um, yeah, it's actually quite extraordinary how across the three and a half hours um, that tension is certainly maintained. And I think what you're implying there is kind of the uh, something a bit of the repetitive nature of it. And one of the aspects I found in this film that did start to kind of grate me down was um, the assassination scenes. They just seem to come over and over again and they are quite brutal, violent and horrifying. And I do think um, Scorsese certainly gets the message across of how, you know, appalling um, what was happening was. And it is really like, quite shocking you know it looks like this peaceful integrated community from the outside but it's clearly you know corrupted by envy distrust uh, betrayal and murder there's so much that's told you know even you know through um, uh, facial expressions and little like looks and exchanges and Lily Gladstone does a really good job at kind of encapsulating within her performance the fear that really existed within um, the osagination at what was happening and that kind of sense of powerlessness um, to do anything about it at that could there have been maybe 60 to 90 90 minutes less of the film to convey that message across. I would think so. I didn't think it needed to be as long as it was. Stars out of five day for you. Uh, it's, a four you. F- it's a four for me, four out of five. I could have watched another half an hour. I probably will actually go see it again, which I was surprised by because when I left it, I was in such a state of devastation that I was like, oh, I couldn't possibly. But now I kind of want to see it again. Um, Scorsese has given many interviews and he gave one earlier this year where he said that he's running out of time and that he didn't understand years ago when Akira Kurosawa won an award and said he was running out of time as well. He was saying it's just too late to make all the films in my head. And the sound that you're hearing there, listener, is me trying not to burst into tears because there's so much attached to the production. Lily Gladstone, who is amazing in this, almost gave up acting until Scorsese came calling. And I think as well, not to give it away or anything, but this film closes with an audacious piece of filmmaking, a decision that Scorsese makes, and it knocked me out. It's a difficult film, but I think everyone needs to go and see it. And from you, stars out of five, Deirdre. That's so funny because I know the decision you're talking about and I hated that. I was like, oh, Scorsese, could you not have reeled it in a bit? But anyway, uh, I'm going to give it four and a half stars because I mean, at the end of the day, it is a masterpiece. It's never dull. For me, it loses that half star on the basis of I don't think it's Leonardo DiCaprio's uh, best performance and I just think it could have been trimmed just a little. 
All right, now to Faux, starring our Oscar nominees Saoirse Ronan and Paul Meskel. Set in late middle 21st century, Hen and Junior li- uh, lives are turned upside down when a mysterious stranger arrives with an offer they can't refuse. Uh, Deirdre, bring us into their lives. Yes, so this is set in uh, 2065. This is a post-apocalyptic future. Um, natural resources have become scarce. They're starting to explore uh, the possibilities of living in outer space and they're also starting to look at um, artificial intelligence, uh, intelligence and replacing humans and what can kind of exist there. So we're following um, Junior and Hen as they have just learned this news that uh, Junior has been chosen to live off planet. Um, Hen is going to be staying on Earth and she'll be living with an AI replacement of her um, husband. So naturally when we first meet um, Junior and Hen there's something of a bit of awkwardness and maybe coldness in that relationship although it does start to kind of um, warm up as the film progresses and we learn that um, they essentially have a year together before this um, transition this change is about to take place and what the film really does is kind of capture um, the tension uh, just before that exchange is you know due to occur. Yes well as you said a stranger calls so here Junior played by Paul Meskel and Henrietta or Hen played by Saoirse Ronan uh, their lives in, are interrupted when a stranger arrives unexpectedly at their isolated farm. Someone's here Looks official, doesn't it? Yeah, it could be. When was the last time we had a visitor? They must be lost. No, I don't think so. He must want something. Oh my god. Hey, whoa. Um, you been messing with this? What are you talking about? It's empty. Yeah, and we never leave it loaded. What do you mean we never Just leave it loaded? Just put the gun what? back. Put it back. Or what? Just put the gun back, okay? We need to go. Come it- on. I'll get the door. It's empty. Okay. Well, I can't that's... do anything with the gun. It's empty. That's Paul Meskel and Saoirse Ronan as Hen and Junior from Faux. Dave, they're both American. How are they doing? And they've got a very, like, even though it's a sci-fi film, it's very intimate. Oh, it's a chamber piece. This could be a stage play. You only have three main actors and that's pretty much it. How are they doing? I'd say very well. Um, <clears throat> I went into this kind of anticipating it not to be very good. And the reason I say that is because the reviews haven't been very good. And I wouldn't ordinarily refer to this, but they have been, this film's been getting a kicking and I find it kind of surprising. I think the, a film like this can only live and die on its performances because it's the sci-fi, you know, the big sci-fi elements we talk about. It's a low budget movie. It's lo-fi. You're not going to see that much apart from the occasional very nicely created vista in the background but it's all about the characters sharing a small house together and the tension that comes from that. And both, Saoirse Ronan, you know, one of our most established veteran, incredible actresses, and she's only 29 years old. Uh, Paul Meskel, very much on the rise. Two brilliant performers, yes, here playing American, not in their natural accents, but you wouldn't know it for a second. I found their interplay very, very interesting. I will say, though, that, you know, it's funny because you asked the question about Killers of the Flower Moon, and if you know how it's going to play out, if you know that there's going to be repetition, and if you know what the game really is straight away, does that ruin it for you? Not there, but here it does. And D kind of teed up the plot description. This film opens up with introductory text over the thing before you see any kind of images. Uh, if I was the editor, that text is gone. I don't know why it's there. It kind of tells you how the film's going to play out. And I think if it didn't tell you, it would be a lot better. Now, we have this lovely chamber piece between these two characters and then a third character comes in. How does he how does he break up their well it's not that idyllic their their relationship really 
Um, initially, it's not. But, you know, we do kind of then follow um, Junior and Hen a, a bit kind of into the movie. And as we get to that stage, like their deep love for one another is really established quite beautifully. And I think the actors deserve a lot of commendation for, you know, cultivating that chemistry. You can really tell that they're highly devoted to one another and that they're really protective of one another as well. Um, Terence, who is that third character, he's played here by Aaron Pierre, who um, if people have seen, haven't seen the Underground Railroad yet, which is a series on a prime video, I'd really highly recommend it. And his performance in that uh, film is absolutely extraordinary. But he's really interesting as he comes in here as a third player because he does um, quite interrupt the peace between um, these two characters and their kind of, you know, farm life. You know, she's kind of part time working as a waitress. He's part time working in a meat factory and they they just have this life that kind of works quite um, peacefully for them. But when he comes in, you know, his exact motives and intentions with these characters are always questionable. His seediness is unshakable in spite in spite of the fact that he's, you know, always smiling and always very um, cordial and everything. And, you know, as the film kind of progresses, we get to know a little bit more about exactly why he um, is there. But certainly his um, performance and his character here brings a lot of attention. Well, let's hear a clip of that of that particular moment when he comes in. And this is uh, Terence played by Aaron Pierre and he comes and visits Junior and Hen. You know what my dad used to get us to do? What's that? Test of manhood. Don't be an idiot. We'd go outside, stand apart, and we'd each get one punch at the other. Oh, you punch each other? Yeah, you ever punch someone? (laughs) Can't say I have. Mm. Yes, that's what being a man is. Hen, I'm just having a conversation. So would you do your test of manhood with me? No, no, you're just being dumb. That's a clip from Faux. So, Dave, stars out of five. It's three. I mean, you hear it there in the clip. It's a series of acting exercises. The problems with this film is, you know, it's derivative. If you've seen a Twilight Zone episode, a Black Mirror episode, a sci-fi film that deals in kind of spiked romance, then you've seen it before. You know where it's going. But there was just enough here to keep me entertained. I think the performances are worth seeking out. And you, Deirdre? I give it three and a half stars. I thought that um, Saoirse Ronan and Paul Mescal were brilliant in this. We can really see them maturing as actors and this is just the latest en- entry in their respective filmographies. Um, I thought, I've, I found the ending very quite emotional and moving and I will just say off the top, I haven't given anything that you don't learn in the first few minutes of the film away. It's not your fault, it's the film's fault. <laughs> yes, yeah, just just go late. Yeah. <laughs> so three and a half and three for foe. Finally, Halloween is coming, tis the season. It Lives Inside is a horror film set in the US starring Megan Suri as Sam, a high school student caught between the tradition of her Indian family and her teenage life at school in America. Then ex-best friend Tamira starts behaving very oddly. So Dave, can you bring us into this? Yeah, I mean, it's a horror film that deals with that interesting idea there of the cultural heritage situation. And uh, Sam, who's the main character, Megan Suri, who was in Missing earlier this year, good actress. Um, The opening scene, you see her and she's shaving dark hairs off her arms. She takes a selfie but changes the filter to something that makes her look a bit, I guess, more white. It's about her trying to assimilate and fit into society, be popular. 
And that's an interesting idea. But then that's about it because you realise, oh, she already is popular. It's fine. She's left her friend behind. You know, she doesn't seem to rebel against her family that much. You know, it's a weird kind of, it doesn't commit enough to this. And then unfortunately what you're left with is the most generic horror I have seen in months. And it's just, oh, it really annoyed me. It lives inside. So lives inside who? Is there a demon? Is there something going to sprout out of somebody or someplace? Well, it initially lives inside a giant. Jar, but then thanks to a fight between uh, this girl Sam and her former friend uh, the jar is broken and this demonic entity ends up escaping I mean it's funny because the last time we were on the show together talking about a horror movie it was Evil Dead Rise and I think we both established there that Dave is the horror fan I am not so I quite enjoyed this because it wasn't that scary <laughs> watching this film I, it's interesting because I looked up the certificate of it afterwards because I was I was uh, curious I was interested in seeing it and it is rated 50 which is quite mild for a horror movie. You're like, if you want something that's a, an all like gore fest, you're looking at an 18s rating. But as I was watching, I was surprised it didn't have a 12s rating, to Same. be honest, because yeah. it's very kind of teeny bopper. There isn't really that much gore or violence or bloodshed. So I think that if you're looking for an all out horror fest, you probably are like Dave going to be very disappointed. But I was pleasantly surprised because I liked that it wasn't scary. <laughs> so Dave, does it explore Sam's multiculturalism? Is Does that come into the plot or is it just a given? Yeah, not enough. Like, like I was saying earlier on, like it's kind of surface level and I think you can build a horror film on this and the filmmakers clearly wanted to and they talked about the idea of displacement and the idea of relocating and the idea of, you know, trying to, you know, I guess pare down who you really are and of course in the end we know that this lead character will learn a valuable lesson about who she really is and maybe, just maybe, that can defeat the demon in question. It's all one big allegory but to go back to what we were just saying there, um, I've got a 10-year-old nephew, loves horror films. He's watching ones that are probably too older for him. He would reject this in a heartbeat. It's not scary. There's no stakes. The characters are paper thin. And I just, it, this is one, 100 minutes. This feel, this is so like. No fright this Halloween from, <laughs> from It Lives Inside. No. Deirdre, stars out of five. I would give it three stars out of five. I think it's a fine horror movie for teenagers and people like me who aren't horror fans. And I think that there were some interesting no aspects. No need to be frightened on a Halloween, <laughs> yeah. But I think that there were some interesting like horror aspects in it. I thought that the monster design was quite decent. Uh, they have some spooky scenes set in like a red lit room, which I found quite compelling. So I thought it had some, you know, originality to it and everything. But, but clearly my colleague here disagrees. <laughs> <laughs> so from you, Dave, for Scaredy Cats. Uh, yeah, Horror for Babies. It's uh, 106 minutes shorter than Killers of the Flower Moon, but feels twice as long. It's one and a half out of five from me. Oh, I want better. Oh, you're just so mean. My thanks to Deirdre Malumbi and Dave Hanratty. Killers of the Flower Moon, Foe and It Lives Inside go on general release tomorrow. One of the highlights of the Irish Literary Year is the Unpussed Irish Book Awards, which takes place at a ceremony in the Convention Centre Dublin on Wednesday the 22nd of November. The shortlist for the awards has been announced and features a diverse mix of exceptional writing from new and established writers across 19 categories, with awards for Novel of the Year, Crime Fiction, Popular Fiction, Short Story, Irish Language, Poetry and Biography. And some of the shortlisted books include John Clark's biography, Finucane and Me, nominated for Biography of the Year. That's about Marion Finucane and her husband, John, obviously. Sarah Benchy, our colleague in RT, is nominated for the Journal.ie Best Irish Published Book of the Year with Sunday Miscellany, a selection 2018 to 2023. And some of our greatest Irish writers are nominated for the Library Association of Ireland Author of the Year, including Sebastian Barry, Claire Keegan, Liz Nugent and 
and Joseph O'Connor. And in one of the most significant categories, the Eason's novel of the year, the shortlist is Old God's Time, Sebastian Barry, The Wren, The Wren and Enright, How to Build a Boat, Elaine Feeney, So Late in the Day, Claire Keegan, who we interviewed only on uh, Tuesday, Soldier, Soldier, Claire Kilroy, Prophet Song, Paul Lynch, Beasting, Paul Murray, My Father's House, Joseph O'Connor. Congratulations to all the nominated authors and on Post Irish Book Awards will take place, as I said, on November the 22nd. And a one-hour television special from the event will be broadcast on RTE1 on the 6th of December. Full list from irishbooksaward.ie. Big Brother is watching you, Double Think, Sex Crime and Thought Police. Not to mind, Truth is Hate, Plenty is Hate, Peace is Hate, Love is Hate. All slogans created by George Orwell in his novel 1984 for the fictional party that exerts totalitarian rule over the inhabitants of Airship One, formerly known as Britain. 1984 is one of the towering novels of the 20th century with its warning about the horrors of a totalitarian state which we experience through the life of its central character Winston Smith. And yet 1984 told only half the story, that of Smith. Sandra Newman's latest novel Julia looks beyond old misery Smith to the point of view of Julia Worthing, the woman whom Winston Smith falls in love with but ultimately betrays in the original novel by Orwell. And Sandra Newman joins us now. Sandra, you're very welcome to Arena. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Kay. Um, George Orwell's work went out of copyright in 2021. And that year you were approached by the Orwell estate in relation to his masterwork, 1984. What did they ask you to do and how did you feel about the request? Well, they simply asked me to write the novel that I've written. So they they said, would you be interested in writing a version of 1984 from the point of view of Julia? And that was the that was the entire brief. There was no there were no other like restrictions or anything. And I was immediately thrilled and then daunted. I thought, okay, I would love to do this, but but can I actually pull it off? So I I went away and reread 1984. And I somehow just managed to forget all of my fears. Like as as I was reading it, ideas began to come to me, like at a rate of five a page. I almost couldn't mm-hmm. read because I had started to write my own novel already. Now you reread it many times, I'm sure, and studied it. What areas struck you as you read it that you know maybe he he ignored because he was he, he was very focused on this vision of this totalitarian state. Well, I think the character of Julia is is really interesting because on the page she comes across as a real person. When she's speaking to Winston, you hear a real woman's voice. But the character also doesn't quite add up. Her choices kind of don't make sense. It's never it's never quite explained why she um approaches Winston. So so that I was really interested in. But I as well, Orwell brings up all of this stuff. He brings up artificial insemination as the way the party wants people to have children in the future. 
But then he doesn't go into it and tell us what that's like and, and what that whole program involves and what it's like to be a woman who's going to have an artificial insemination, to have a baby for the party that will then be taken away and put into a home to be raised by the party apart from her. Um, and he also brings up a lot of intriguing, fun stuff, like Julia is always trading on the black market, but we never see what the black market is like or how people get away with that. Uh, Julia has had a lot of affairs before, and we learn nothing about it. We don't know how she got away with it. We don't know who these men were or what it was like for her. And so all of that is really intriguing to me, and and it was actually a lot of fun to flesh it out. So it's not a prequel, it's not a sequel, it's just a retelling from Julia's point of view, going over many of the um, uh, the episodes that we know well from Orwell's novel. That's right. And there are there are a few scenes which are actually in Orwell's novel where I use Orwell's dialogue and I'm just writing writing around his dialogue in a, in a sense. But I, I think it's sort of writing this book really made me feel, you know, it felt very very natural to make it a different story because I think in a love affair the two different people have completely different stories and completely different experiences of what has happened. But also she I think inevitably, in a totalitarian regime, everyone has secrets. She has secrets. Um, Winston Smith like drags her into his secrets. And we never really find out in, in the original what's going on with all of the characters. In my book, we find out a little more, but then that makes that creates new secrets. So, Now, like Orwell, you begin, Julia, when the workers pause all activity for the two minutes hate session. Mm-hmm. So bring us into Julia's world. She's a young mechanic. She works in the fiction department of the, par- uh, of the party's Ministry of Truth. You must have had fun as a writer uh, putting her in the in the fiction department. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, it's yeah, it's it's I think it's interesting to to read those scenes in Orwell again now that we have AI that is actually writing fiction for us. Um, and he he mentions the fiction machines, but he doesn't actually describe how they work. So I, I was trying to figure out how exactly they work. He refers vaguely to the kaleidoscope and the fiction machine. And so so I came up with something that that more or less that more or less works for that. But I think the the Julia she she's very she's very like she's not she says that she's not literary, she's not intellectual. So I'm sort of thinking of her as a person who works with fiction but doesn't read as somebody who lives with the the politics of her society and and you know repeats all the right slogans but doesn't think about them. Um and what is who is that person? Who is the person who manages to have some kind of life like in the midst of all of this without examining it? Yes, because I think was it Orwell said about the women that they in in 19 in in the novel 1984 that they were the greatest um consumers of the propaganda that they received. Whereas you don't see either Julia or the proles or the other inhabitants of Airship One as kind of passive people. No, and that's that's funny. Like Orwell says that, but he's saying it through Winston's point of view. So it's it's actually unclear. It seems it seems to me that a lot of that stuff is is just Winston's illusion about about himself. He thinks that he's the only person who sees through all this. And when he really comes to talk to Julia, she she is much 
less infected by it than he is. Um, and he never really manages to talk to any proles. He speaks to one prole who turns out to be an old drunk who can't really even, you know, string together a story that makes sense. And and Winston takes that as meaning that all of the proles are like this and there's no point talking to them. But Orwell clearly doesn't think that. Orwell actually, actually to some degree, is showing us Winston's limitations um, in these scenes and that there's this whole other world that he doesn't doesn't fully understand. And again, I thought that was, it's an interesting jumping off place for me. Yes, because another thing that Julia and Winston disagree on is this idea of being watched all the time. Big Brother Mm. is watching you. This is kind of brutalism for Winston Smith, whose great um, uh, action of rebellion is to keep a diary in the darkest place in his his apartment. But Julia's less concerned about that at the beginning of the novel. Yeah, I Julia is of a different generation from Winston and this is this is a feature in in 1984 so Orwell is is showing Julia as being of a generation that grew up in this world and, and she's sort of a native of this world whereas Winston is always like the eternal outsider. So 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 I think Julia Julia has never not been surveilled. Julia really has t- takes it for granted that she will have to like change her clothes and take showers in front of telescreens that will be watching her. Um, and so she she has learned how to live her life, how to do everything in those circumstances and not really to think about it because you don't think about the things that happen to you literally all the time. Yes, because Winston Smith thinks he's heroic, but we, reading Julia, see that she is much more heroic. She is trying to live a life, however compromised it is, within this totalitarian state. And she's not that impressed by Winston Smith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's funny. I think that's that's kind of true. And I, I was trying to make her and like everything in my book as true as possible to 1984. And this is also kind of true in 1984. In 1984, whenever he really begins to speak about his beliefs, she falls asleep. (laughs) And this is kind of... Orwell doesn't really play things for laughs too much, but he does have a lot of things in 1984 that are just very subtly funny. And I think that's, that's one of the things. Yes, yes, she calls him Old Misery Smith or uh, Old Misery Winston. Yeah, but that, I'm afraid that's mine. That I made up. But Yeah, he's a bit miserable, though. I thought in 1984, yeah. even yeah, though, yes. you know, we were to buy him as heroic, he was a bit miserable. So I think you, 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 you described that very well. Yeah. yeah, I always wonder if Orwell would have been surprised that people take him as a hero because he, he does have heroic aspects, but through a lot of the book, He's a, he's actually just very sort of self-pitying and and not very sympathetic and not very caring about other people and with a lot of really horrible thoughts. So George Orwell wrote 1984 in very turbulent times and obviously we're going through turbulent times now. What do you think is, you know, what can 1984 say to us now that we haven't experienced in the period since he wrote it? I think I think 1984 most of all should teach us to trust our instincts about such things to trust our feelings about um 
uh, all the we we actually live in a sort of a bath of propaganda that's beyond anything that Orwell envisaged in a lot of ways, and we live surveilled beyond Orwell's wildest dreams. Um, and we've come to take it kind of for granted, but nobody is that comfortable with it. So so I think that's one of the things. Um, another of the things is that we should take seriously the threat of totalitarianism, and we should actually act to stop it before it's too late, which is, which is the main warning that he intended to give us, and we should take that seriously. And from Julia? Ah, from Julia. I think the thing that Julia has to teach us um, is first that we can still live in the most extreme conditions. Um, Human beings are sort of extremophiles, and we can manage to love each other and care about each other and have a good time, even in extreme conditions. But she also, I think, has to teach us that there's a limit to that, and at some point... Again, we need to take the threat seriously, and we can't live completely apolitical lives in a in a time that's being torn apart by politics. Very nice to talk to you, Sandra. Sandra Newman's book. Sandra Newman's book is Julia, and it's published by Granta. You're listening to Thursday Night's Arena. Irish Chamber Orchestra will present a cycle of Beethoven's five piano concertos over the coming seasons. These piano concertos are masterworks of a genre revolutionised by Beethoven. Tomorrow evening we'll see performances of Beethoven's Piano Concerto No. 1 in C major and Piano Concerto No. 3 in C minor at University Concert Hall Limerick by the Grammy-nominated pianist Christian Bezedenhout. Christian is an expert in Beethoven's music, has recorded all five of his piano concertos and is a regular guest with the world's leading ensembles. He will be directing these concertos from the keyboards without a conductor. And I'm delighted to say Christian joins us from our Limerick studio. Christian, what drew you to Beethoven's music and what inspired you to? You've recorded all five. That was during one session. It was, yes. Was that rather foolish? It was, uh, (laughs) in retrospect, a slightly mad idea. (laughs) (laughs) Beethoven's music has has always had an enormous appeal, I mean, for everyone. There's the sense of revolution that is um, sort of so deeply woven into the fabric of his writing. Not just that revolution, but this kind of sense of deep nobility um, that you sense in his writing. Beethoven's story is also so so deeply touching. And I think these concertos map the journey of his initial success in Vienna, but then his increasing deafness um, to the point where by the time of the fifth concerto, he wasn't able to premiere that piece in public anymore because it just wasn't possible for him to play. So this this kind of wonderful personal journey that we sense and see in Beethoven's writing particularly mapped out in the piano concertos very vividly. And you're a great uh, exponent of Mozart's music and then taking on Beethoven. Is that, you know, that revolutionary spirit? Is it just that contrast? Do you see that contrast in the works? I mean, there are many contrasts in the works, obviously. Very much so. Um, I, I mean, it's important to remember, of course, that Mozart was Mozart was the the massive influence and and the person to match at this time. You know, Beethoven bursts into the scene in Vienna in the 1790s and 
everyone knows that Mozart is the master of the piano concerto. So Beethoven has a lot to prove in the genre. Um, so Mozart is so self-contained and such incredibly perfect beautifully proportioned music. Beethoven needs to do a lot in order to impress the Viennese audience. So it's a fantastic thing to have experience with Mozart's music and to then come to Beethoven with that in mind. And I think it's great to, to do a project like this with Irish Chamber Orchestra because we've just done a project of Mozart piano concertos last year. And so you can almost see what it's like 10 years later to to handle this music with, with the experience of having done Mozart. I think that's very helpful for this repertoire. Now in Limerick, you're going to be sitting at the piano playing the piano part and then there are the violins and then the wind instruments and you are also conducting or directing. So how how do you, How first of all, how did Beethoven modulate the difference of the instruments with the, the orchestral instruments with the piano and how do you go about doing it as conductor come pianist? That's a really good question. You know, we don't know so much about exactly what they did in these concerts. Um, I mean, mm. Beethoven certainly played the solo. We don't really know what he did when the orchestra was playing, if he stood up or how he used his hands. But it's clear he was directing the whole thing in some way. Um, I've got the lid off the piano and I'm facing into the orchestra. So I'm really a part of the team. And so, as you say, I, I play the solos. But at the beginning of the piece for the orchestral introduction, I'll stand up at times and I'll give kind of conducting gestures to the trumpets and timpani who are of course quite far from the from the rest of the team as it were and it's a combination of those things sometimes I'll be at the keyboard seated and I'll give a gesture with my hands um, high in the air other times I really need to stand up and, and wave for the entire orchestra to see and then of course I sit down and have to play the solos but it's all part of the kind of chamber music quality of these performances without conductor and I'm sure that it attains an, a, a, an extra element of intensity because of course we're all so responsible for the final result um, has a bit more edge and excitement to it I think. Well I have the picture in my mind now so we're going to play some of the pia piano concerto number one in C major this is the Rondo Allegro. Christian Besedenhut there with the Freiburg Baroque Orchestra with Beethoven's Piano Concerto Number no. 1 in C Major. It's just wonderful to listen to after you describing it there because you can <laughs> feel the, 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 the passion of the orchestra and then you see, oh God, I better get on with my solo piece now. And then the orchestra become themselves to, 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 to put the spotlight on you. That's right. And, you know, it, I think it's important to remember that the idea of the piano concerto in the, uh, the late 18th century was still very much this kind of vivid, almost cartoonish uh, dialogue between piano and orchestra, you know, a quick silver changes of mood and colours and the orchestra suddenly playing fortissimo and then the piano responding to that and, and just the whole the whole thing is a theatre of, of incredibly intense um, gestures and emotions in quick succession. Um, and that's something that I feel we're able to get really super brilliantly with the Irish Chamber Orchestra. I mean, it's just such a pleasure to work with them on this music, really, truly. So you will be playing uh, a grand piano, 
But in Beethoven's time, he would have had a, a forte piano. And you too have mastered this instrument. That's very kind of you to say. <laughs> you have uh, one of your own. That's true, I do. And, you know, I play these these old pianos um, or copies of them quite a lot. So it's not so normal that I'll be playing on the Steinway like I am tomorrow um, with the Irish Chamber Orchestra. But, um, you know, I think the experience of playing with on the older instruments brings a, a slightly different perspective on, and especially with the old instruments of the orchestra, of, of what this music must have sounded like at the time, which was very dramatic sense of, of colour and palette that Beethoven is exploiting with these instruments. And and I think just having that in the back of one's mind brings a different kind of sound and intensity to the to the way these pieces can finally be consumed, which is to remind us that these were radically um, advanced and progressive pieces for their time and need to sound like that. And presumably those, uh, the Viennese forte piano is not as strong an instrument as a grand piano. So therefore, would the orchestra have to temper the, the strength they play at? Or how do you do that? Certainly. Uh, you know, Czerny, who was a student of Beethoven, says that the piano concerto is just not a really good piece to hear in public because the piano gets a bit lost, in fact, in the balance. Um, so it's clear that even Beethoven was writing for a utopian model of these pieces where maybe the piano in his mind was more audible than it fa- in fact is in real life. But I think also the contrast between the enormity and the strength and power, kind of brute force of the orchestra and the very delicate forte piano is part of the program of these pieces too, that the the orchestra can devour the piano at any moment. And that's part of the the rhetoric of the drama and danger of these pieces as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, it sounds fantastic. My thanks to Christian Bezadenhut. And you can hear see Christian at the University Concert Hall Limerick, Shim Satiratrally, and the new Wen Recital Hall at the RIAM in Dublin from the 20th to the 22nd of October. More details from irishchamberorchestra.com. That's it for tonight's show. The programme was researched by Liam Murphy and Paula Shields. Tommy O'Sullivan was on sound. Ali Hamilton is the broadcast coordinator and tonight's show was produced by Sinead Egan. And John Creedon is next.